Well, good morning, everyone. If you go ahead and make your way back towards your seats, I'm Dennis, one of the pastors here. So glad all of you are with us this morning. Shaq already mentioned this, but if you are with us for the first time this morning or you're just here and we don't know each other, I would love to meet you at the end of the service just for you to come up and introduce yourself to me, say hi, so that I could try to take you out for a cup of coffee sometime this week or next week. Um, This morning, we are continuing in our study of the Old Testament book, Exodus. Last week, Pastor Shaq walked us through a portion of Exodus chapters 11 and 12, focused on the Passover. Today, we're going to spend our time together focused on Exodus chapter 12, verses 31 through 42. It's the story that actually gives the book its name. It's the historical moment when the Israelites march out of Egypt and head towards the promised land after hundreds of years of oppression and enslavement. However, there's two verses that are tucked into this passage that we are going to spend the entirety of our time wrestling through together this morning. Those verses are 35 and 36. So we're going to read the whole passage together, and then we're going to focus in on chapter or verses 35 and 36. And the topic we're going to be discussing this morning is the topic of reparations. And I want to take a moment and just make a request. I think a lot of us hear the word reparations And we come to it with preconceived notions and ideas. And my assumption for that is because we've never heard it talked about in church. I think the reason that we come to it with preconceived notions and ideas is because the only places that we've heard it talked about are in the media or in politicians. We've only ever really heard it discussed as like a political or economic project. We've never really taken the time in a church setting to see if this might actually be something that finds its roots and foundation in Scripture. We oftentimes might hear this depending on political affiliation and think, yes, 100% reparations are good. Or we might think reparations, that is a Marxist ideology of redistributing wealth. And those are the ways that we know to think about it. And yet, right in the heart of this passage about the Israelites marching out of Egypt are these two verses that we're going to focus on together this morning, where the Egyptian people turn over almost all of their wealth to the people that they had been oppressing and enslaving for hundreds of years. And for me, I've only ever existed in churches that will read the story, include those two verses, and then when they talk about the passage, ignore those two verses. And so, I wanted to take time together this morning, knowing my own spiritual journey, and wondering about our spiritual journey together as a church family, and wanted to try to talk through this, maybe for the first time in any of our lives as a Christian in church. I think it's also worth saying, 
I've never talked about this topic before. I am on this journey too. I'm not 100% sure that I am going to get every aspect of this right. What I can promise you is that over the past 12 years of my ministry life, I've never spent as much time researching and preparing for this talk as I, well, I don't think I said that the right way, but you get what I'm saying. <laughs> I spent a lot of time, guys. And so we're on this journey together, and for the next 30 minutes, let's come together as a family with humble and soft hearts to see what God might want to say to us. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll start into our story. Father, thank you that we could be gathered together this morning, that we can be sisters and brothers, that we can be family, that we can wrestle with hard truths in your scriptures, that we can try to make sense of what you might be telling us and how we are supposed to orient ourselves towards you as faithful followers of yours. So would we come to you with humble hearts? Would you teach us what you want to teach us? Would your spirit lead and guide us now? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So our story is Exodus 12, and it begins in verse 31. Here's the story. During the night... Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go. And also bless me. Like for a moment, can we just pause and like recognize the audacity of Pharaoh? <laughs> like I know that like my country is in absolute ruins. I know that I have oppressed and enslaved and killed you for hundreds of years, but I'm finally letting you go, so can you bless me on your way out? It's interesting that there's absolutely no record of Moses or Aaron doing this. So it's almost like they hear it and they're just like, okay, Pharaoh. <laughs> Story continues. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. For otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, as well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of time that Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. And just to focus in on verses 35 and 36 specifically, this is what they say again. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. 
It's a fulfillment of something that God spoke to Moses nine chapters earlier in Exodus chapter three. There, God says this to Moses, and I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. But even earlier than that, God signaled all the way back in the book of Genesis in a conversation that he had with Abram that this very thing would happen. In Genesis 15, this is what God speaks to Abram. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions." God had been at work all the way back in Genesis 15 to bring this moment recorded in Exodus 12 to fruition. This moment when Abram's descendants and God's people, the Israelites, would be liberated from their 400 years of enslavement. This moment when God would orchestrate an incredible redistribution of financial and material wealth from Israel's oppressors to the Israelite people. Duke Kwan and Greg Thompson, both pastors and authors, describe reparations this way. Reparations is the work of repairing that which has been broken and restoring that which has been stolen. I'm going to read that again. Reparations is the work of repairing that which has been broken and restoring that which has been stolen. In this sense, then, reparations is not primarily political or even an economic project. It's first and foremost a biblical and theological project. It's a project at the heart of God's redemptive work here in Exodus, and as we'll see throughout the Old Testament and in the Gospels. In Leviticus chapter 5, we hear God as he's giving instructions to Moses. The Israelites have left Egypt. God's instructing them on how they're now to be his people, how they are to relate to him, how they are to worship him. How they're to, in this particular instance, make atonement for the harm that they've done and the sins that they've committed. In describing this, God tells Moses, this is how the Israelite people are to go about making an offering once they become aware of the harm they've done and the sin that they've committed. So this is what God says to Moses in Leviticus 5. They, the Israelite people, must make restitution for what they have failed to do in regard to the holy things. Pay an additional penalty of a fifth of its value and give it all to the priest. The priest will then make atonement for them with the ram as a guilt offering and they will be forgiven. 
the first few words of this verse, if they were translated literally, would read, and they shall make amends for the harm that they have done. And in this instance, the kind of amends that God expects his people to make have a financial component to them. An offering needs to be made. An offering that they either are providing out of their own material resource or that they are having to purchase in order to make the offering. And then in addition to the offering, they have to pay a penalty on top of it before atonement can be made by the priest and before they can be forgiven. And on an individual level, this is the work of reparations. It's repairing that which has been broken and returning that which has been stolen. But it's reparations at an individual level. And so much of the conversation that we hear and understand culturally talks about reparations at a systemic or structural or cultural level. Is there an example of that in the Bible? Yes. Just requires a careful reading of Ezra. In the book of Ezra, we find the Israelite people in captivity in Babylon. They've been in captivity in Babylon at the beginning of the book of Ezra for nearly 70 years or two generations. The prior king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, had conquered Israel and taken all of the Israelite people into captivity. Nebuchadnezzar is no longer in power, and in his place, a new king, King Cyrus, has come into power. And Cyrus issues an edict that allows all of the Israelite people who had been conquered and taken captive to be set free and repatriated back to their homeland. But not only does Cyrus's edict enable the Israelite people to be repatriated back to their homeland, he also goes into the Babylonian temple where Nebuchadnezzar had taken all of the religious artifacts that he had stolen out of the temple in Jerusalem when they had conquered the Israelites, Cyrus goes and gets all of those and returns them to the Israelites. At the end of Ezra chapter 1, we're told that Cyrus returns to the Israelites 5,400 articles of gold and silver in and of itself. This is an act of reparations. Cyrus is repairing what has been broken. He's setting to free the Israelites from captivity, and he's enabling them to return home. And he's quite literally returning to them what's been stolen from them, 5,400 articles of gold and silver. And Cyrus is doing all of this even though he wasn't the one who conquered the Israelites. He's doing this even though he wasn't one of the people who took the Israelites captive. He's doing all of this even though 
Cyrus wasn't alive when the Israelites were conquered and taken captive. He wasn't responsible for plundering their temple. He wasn't responsible for stealing all of their religious articles. And yet he still takes it upon himself as the political leader of Babylon to make right what had been done to the Israelite people. A few chapters later in Ezra, we get to Ezra chapter 6. Another king has risen to power in Babylon. This is a king named King Darius, a king who was not apparently familiar with Cyrus's edict that the Israelites could return to their homeland and rebuild their temple. Because when King Darius comes to power, some of the Israelite exiles, they have left Babylon, they have returned home, and they are starting the work of rebuilding their temple when some Babylonian officials come across them and discover their work. And so those Babylonian officials, they question the Israelites and ask what they're doing. And the Israelites say, we're doing what King Cyrus said we could do. And these officials, unaware of what King Cyrus said they could do, send a letter to the new king, Darius, and ask him, are they doing what they should be doing? Are they allowed to be doing this work? And Darius receives the letter and orders that the Babylonian archives be searched, where, in fact, a letter is found that contains Cyrus's edict. And this is part of that letter. Let the temple be rebuilt as a place to present sacrifices, and let its foundation be laid. The costs are to be paid by the royal treasury. Also, the gold and silver articles of the house of God are to be returned to their places in the temple in Jerusalem. King Darius learns that the gold and silver articles had been returned to the Israelites as the edict outlined. But he wants to remain committed to the promise that Babylon will pay for the temple in Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And so in Ezra chapter 6 verse 8, this is how Darius responds. Moreover, I hereby decree what you are to do for these elders of the Jews. The expenses of these men are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed must be given them daily without fail, so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven. Darius responds by fulfilling the promise of King Cyrus, his predecessor. This promise to pay the expenses of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. That promise is now made by two Babylonian kings who had nothing to do with conquering the Israelite people or taking them into captivity. Cyrus and Darius easily could have wiped their hands clean and said, I wasn't there. I wasn't responsible. I didn't do these things. But instead, they set themselves and their people about repairing what's been broken and restoring what has been stolen. And if we read the text closely, we can see the way that Darius determines how they'll pay for the temple to be rebuilt. He enacts a tax on his people 
who lived in the trans-Euphrates region of Babylon. And that tax is what will be used to fund the rebuilding of the temple. So now we have everyday Babylonian citizens who had nothing to do with conquering the Israelites or taking them captive, paying higher taxes so that the Israelites can rebuild their temple that Nebuchadnezzar and their ancestors had plundered and destroyed. It's the work of reparations. Cyrus and Darius both restore what had been taken from the Israelites and return what had been stolen. And at the core of this biblical principle of reparations is the practice of restitution. This is what restitution means. The restoration of something stolen or lost back to its original owner. In Ezra, the act of restitution made by the king Cyrus and Darius and the Babylonian people generations after their ancestors had harmed the Israelites is returning to the Israelite people their religious artifacts and providing the financial means necessary to rebuild their temple. In Leviticus, the act of restitution made by the individual sinner is the offering of a sacrifice and then the paying of an additional penalty in order to address the individual sinner's harm done to God. But all of this is in the Old Testament. Are there any examples of restitution being made or reparations being offered in the New Testament? Well, let me tell you a story about a wee little man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, a person reviled by the Jewish people. Zacchaeus, as a chief tax collector, would prepay the taxes of an entire region to the Roman Empire. And then he would go about collecting taxes from the people who inhabited that region, in essence to repay himself for what he had already prepaid to Rome. Tax collectors were known for charging higher tax rates than they were required to charge, and most often they took advantage of the marginalized and under-resourced because the marginalized and the under-resourced lacked the cultural and societal resources necessary to fight back. And so Zacchaeus made quite the fortune for himself by cheating people out of extra taxes and keeping those for himself. But then Zacchaeus meets Jesus. And Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. And then something dramatic happens. Luke records it this way in chapter 19, verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. That's restitution. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save what was lost. Zacchaeus is engaging the practice of restitution. He's returning something that he himself stole to its rightful owner. But he's not just returning what he stole, he's returning it multiplied by four. And he's giving half of what he stole 
to the poor. Zacchaeus is repairing what has been broken and returning what had been stolen. And notice Jesus' response. Jesus announces after Zacchaeus speaks that salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house and that Zacchaeus is now a part of God's people. But Zacchaeus didn't do any of the things that so many of us know a person is supposed to do in order to become a person who follows after Jesus. He doesn't ask Jesus to lead him in a prayer of salvation. He doesn't profess Jesus as Savior and Lord. Instead, he declares his faith in Jesus as Savior by engaging the practice of restitution. Now, it's worth stating, Zacchaeus isn't saved by his activity, but his belief in Jesus as Savior is demonstrated by his activity. He doesn't need to declare his faith in Jesus in word because before Jesus, he's done it in deed. The Apostle James, later in the New Testament, will describe this kind of religion as the kind of religion that God will accept. Because as James says, it's a faith marked by doing justice. So, if we return to our text for today, while the Egyptian people may not know that what they're actually doing by turning over all their silver and gold and clothing to the Israelite people is paying restitution, that's still exactly what God has orchestrated. They're engaging this practice of restitution. For hundreds of years, they stole from the Israelite people who as slaves built entire store cities for the Egyptian people where excess resource, whether agricultural or militaristic or financial, could be stored. For hundreds of years, the Egyptians exploited the Israelites, withholding from them what was rightfully theirs, wages. The Egyptians only are able to rise to their current level of economic and military and political power because of the people that they have oppressed and enslaved. And in this one act, this one profound act in Exodus 12, the Egyptians make restitution to the Israelites. And this story creates a foundation for us to have the conversation about reparations as a biblical and theological topic. Now that was a lot. I don't know about you, but it kind of feels like my brain needs a break. This is where I'd be tempted to take out my phone and start scrolling Instagram to see what some of you had eaten last night. But instead, we're just going to take a quick break, and here's a picture of a puppy. And here's another picture of a puppy. These are not pictures of my golden retriever as a puppy, but they made me think of my puppy when she was a puppy. So, reparations is the work of repairing that which has been broken and restoring that which has been stolen. And I want to talk about this for a little bit on an individual and on a systemic level. First, on the individual level. Many of us grew up in churches that taught us to primarily think of repentance as an act of inwardly grieving, the way that we acted towards or harmed another person. 
Many of us were taught to believe that repentance is primarily an activity that takes place in the privacy of our own hearts and in the context of our own personal relationship with Jesus. That all we really need to do is ask God for his forgiveness and we're okay. And then occasionally, our inward grieving would lead us to the point of conviction that we would seek reconciliation with the person that we harmed. We were taught that if we felt that we really needed to, we could go to the person we harmed and seek their forgiveness by apologizing and pledging to not act in that manner again. In this way, we tend to think of repentance as being marked by regret. We wish we hadn't done a certain thing, and then we pledge to not do it again. But true repentance, as outlined in the Bible, doesn't stop at just regret. Repentance includes the work of reparations. It doesn't stop just at relational reconciliation. It seeks to repair. True repentance pushes us past regret and seeks to repair, but too often we stop short of this on an individual level. Because to practice this ethic inside of our personal relationships costs us something. A few weeks ago, I had a conversation with a young woman. She'd had a really difficult interaction with another person and had spoken things publicly to and about this person that were, in my word, unkind and also untrue. In essence, this young woman's words harmed the other person. In our conversation, the young woman realized that she needed to go back to the person and apologize and seek their forgiveness. But we also talked about what she could do to, in essence, restore what she had stolen. This young woman's words and actions had damaged this other person's reputation. It had damaged their standing in other people's eyes. And so she made the difficult choice to not only go back to the person that she harmed and apologize, she also made the decision to seek out all of the other people she had said all of these unkind and untrue things to and confess her sin to them, tell them that she was wrong, and then she committed herself to telling each of these people one good, true, encouraging thing about the other person. This young woman did the hard work of engaging the practice of reparations on an individual level. She sought to repair what she had broken. And by going to all of the other people that she had said these things to, she, attempt to she attempted to return what she had stolen. When we wrong someone... We should absolutely apologize, but I don't think we should stop there. We should also engage our imaginations and seek creative ways to restore, to return to the person what our actions stole from them. Because true faith produces fruit in keeping with repentance. And the fruit is an outward action aligned with our inward repentance. Second, though, we need to talk about this ethic of reparations on a systemic level. And for a moment, I want to speak to those of us who are white. The majority of us did not grow up in churches that taught us to think of repentance beyond the individual personal level. We were taught a kind of biblical theology that stopped at individual repentance. 
we were taught a theology that couldn't really conceive of the systemic and structural impact and scope of our individual and corporate sin. That couldn't even consider the potential that even though many of us, that we did not personally own slaves, we might somehow still be complicit in the sin of our Christian forebears. We've been taught to think that everything we possess is because we ourselves have worked hard for it, that we started at the exact same place as our black sisters and brothers, and that we just made better use of the opportunities that were, we believe, equally presented to both of us. But there's no way that we can read Exodus and believe that the Egyptian people, hundreds of years after the Israelites had first been oppressed and enslaved in their country, had built any of the financial, material, or political, or military power that they now possessed in any way other than on the backs of their Israelite slaves. The practice of slavery had been in place in Egypt for hundreds of years, and with each successive generation, the Egyptian people enjoyed the spoils of their slaves' work in increasingly greater amount. If this is how we can read and understand Exodus, we need to ask ourselves the question why we allow ourselves to think America is somehow different. Duke Kwan says this. It says, the white American church signed the moral permission slip that permitted slavery. And the church failed to bring the full force of biblical ethics to bear on the work of emancipating slaves. The church in its complicity with white slave owners allowed those slave owners to believe that post-Civil War, it was enough to release their slaves, even though they were penniless, destitute, and uneducated, into a society that white people would rather quickly restructure to ensure the ongoing oppression of black people. The white American church failed in its moral and biblical obligation to advocate for and even demand that reparations be made to our black sisters and brothers. And I think it continues to fail. There's no way forward for us without understanding our complicity in the past. And church, I want to speak to everybody now. We all must be a people who repent inwardly and reconcile relationally. And we must be a people who do the kingdom work of building, the kingdom building work of returning to all who have been harmed and restoring what has been stolen. The, cultural, the work of cultural repair is really hard. And if we just take a moment to look at our own communities, we know we need to do the work of repairing our broken and inequitable public education system. We know we need to do the work of repairing a justice system that oftentimes does not equally apply justice across races. We know we need to do the work of repairing policing and law enforcement structures. We know we need to do the work of repairing housing inequities. We know we need to address the poor health outcomes for black women in Pittsburgh. We know we need to address the reality that Pittsburgh is, on the whole, the worst metropolitan area in America for our black neighbors. 
Our black neighbors could literally move anywhere in the country and simply based on moving, their educational, employment, financial, and health outcomes would all increase. But we stop short of this work of repair because it requires us to sacrifice something. For some of us, it feels we have to sacrifice our very bodies. And for some of us, we have to sacrifice our resource. But to be a people who do the work of cultural repair, it's going to cost each of us something. And as followers of Jesus, wherever we see people impacted and affected by injustice, we should be fighting for reparations to be made. And we don't fight for reparations to be made because of any political agenda or affiliation. We don't do it because we want to be woke. We advocate for reparations to be made because it's the way of the kingdom. The God who reveals himself in Exodus and Leviticus and Ezra and the Gospel of Luke is a God intent on making people spiritually and materially whole so that they might have eternal life and thrive and flourish in this life. We advocate for reparations because we are to be a people willing to sacrifice our own well-being so that justice might be done and others might have the opportunity to truly thrive and flourish. Many of you, like Julie and I, uh, pray the Lord's Prayer. Every night, Julie and I do this with our children. In it, we pray these words. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come here and now to our neighbors and neighborhoods and families. May your kingdom come here and now as it is in heaven right now. We know that heaven is the eternal embodiment of the kingdom of God, and we know that in the kingdom of God, every wrong has been set right and every harm committed has been repaired. This prayer, may it be a deep yearning in our hearts. May it be a fire that burns deep in our bones. Church, let's seek to be a people who engage the work of repairing that which has been broken and restoring that which has been stolen. And I want to take a quick moment and speak specifically to my black sisters and brothers in the room. God's promise to Abraham, the Israelites, and even the people that Zacchaeus cheated is that God's desire is to make you whole. That God sees the oppression you've endured. He sees the way you've been cheated. He sees the ways that people have stolen from you what is rightfully yours. And the clear biblical message is that God is not okay with it. His heart is to see you made whole, to see what was stolen from you returned to you. His heart is to see you thrive and flourish. And it's unfortunate that reparations might not be addressed in our lifetime. Like those who have gone before us, we hope in what we cannot yet see. We hope in faith that God will one day fulfill his promises. That just as one day the Israelites who were liberated from slavery in Egypt did not get to see the promised land, many of our black sisters and brothers may not get to experience the day that reparations are finally made. But in faith, we hope for that day. 
We hold to the promise that those of you who have been oppressed and enslaved will not only be set free, but that what was stolen from you will be returned to you. And my hope is that together as a church community, we can seek to figure out what it means to be a people individually and corporately who seek to repair what's been broken, to return what's been stolen, to look at our neighborhoods and our communities and to set ourselves about this work. It's a work of cultural repair, of seeing our neighborhoods become a little bit more like the kingdom of God. So, until God's kingdom comes, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be together as a family. Father, we trust your spirit to take these words and plant them into our hearts. Father, where I have gotten it wrong, we trust your spirit to get it right. And so, Father, would you just teach us what it means for us to really be people about repairing what's been broken, about returning what's been stolen. Father, we love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.